Please turn to Daniel chapter 11. I don't know if you all are aware of the other holiday going on, but uh, this is the fifth day of Hanukkah. So if you have any Jewish friends, wish them Hanukkah tov. Strangely, the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah is not found in the Old Testament since it happened after the Old Testament scriptures were finished. It is mentioned in the New Testament. It's called the Feast of Dedication. It's in John chapter 10. And Jesus gave a major speech at that holiday. 160 years before Jesus was born, the Greeks had conquered Israel. A Greek king tried to force the Israelis to give up their faith. However, a revolution began that succeeded in overthrowing the Greeks. And they were able to rededicate their temple. But they only had enough oil to burn the lamp for uh, the menorah, the giant lamp in the temple, for one day. Miraculously, the oil lasted eight days. That's why you have the... Menorah in the temple was a seven-branched candelabra, but the Hanukkah menorah are always eight candles because they light one for each day to celebrate that miracle. Thus, the Israelis were able to rededicate their temple, and that's the reason why the holiday is called Hanukkah, which is Hebrew for dedication. All of that, though, was in fulfillment of prophecy. Saying the holiday is not mentioned in the Old Testament, that's true, but the events surrounding it were, and they're in the passage we're going to look at today. God gave Daniel a prophetic panorama, if you will, of Israel's future. Now to us, these events are ancient history. And I'm going to try very hard this morning not to sound like the History Channel, but I may a little bit. Because there are so many dates and places and, and names here. But to Daniel, those were all future. They were all future when God showed it to him. Now, that tells us something about the nature of prophecy, doesn't it? I, I have people who don't know their Bible tell me all the time, well, the Bible's just like Nostradamus, it can mean anything you want to. I challenge anybody, read a little bit of Daniel, read a little bit of Nostradamus, and you'll see the difference right away. As we've been seeing, these prophecies are quite specific. And today is exceptionally so. It's like God were to lay out in the 6th century BC everything that was going to happen up to 168 and then jump ahead to the future to the final seven years that was the kind of panorama that God gave the prophet Daniel and they were fulfilled literally we know this because we can look at it it's history for us but for Daniel they were all future this is a wonderful evidence I think of God's inspiration of the scriptures who else could know the future like that except for God who else could predict that way I can't even tell you the way the next election's going to go I can't tell you how they're going to vote this month on different things I can't tell you what uh, Iran or North Korea is going to do but God can God can no one but God could know the future in that kind of detail. Now we're in Daniel's final vision. As I mentioned in the announcements, we, I plan to finish up with the book of Daniel. This Not next week, but the week after. And God had sent the angel Gabriel with a message of what the future held for Daniel's people, Israel. This week we're going to look at the portion of those prophecies that have already been fulfilled. And then the next time we study Daniel, we'll finish up looking at the part that's future. So 
So starting with the first verse then of chapter 11, the angel revealed to Daniel, In the first year of Darius the Mede I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong, though, through, I'm strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, we've already talked about the, the identity of, of Darius the Mede, but he was the one who Cyrus appointed over the former kingdom of Babylon. And the Persians, if you'll remember in chapter 2, they correspond to the chest and arms of silver on that on Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue. Uh, in chapter 7, they were the bear in the vision of the four animals. And then in chapter 8, they were the ram in the vision of the ram and the goat. They gave us some specifics about Greece and, uh, and Persia. Remember, this was a prophecy when the angel spoke to Daniel. Now it's ancient history. The angel revealed there would be three intervening Persian kings, followed by a fourth one. Now those three kings we know from history, they were Cambyses, uh, Pseudosmyrtus, and uh, Darius I. That fourth king, though after them, will become very wealthy and powerful and will attack the Greeks. That fourth king was Xerxes. We know him also in the book of Esther by the Hebrew form of his name, Ahasuerus. So he actually did attack Greece in 480 BC. That was to avenge the Greek defeat of his father Darius in the Battle of Marathon. You've heard of marathons, no doubt. Well, that's what it gets its name from. Uh, Darius was defeated in 490 BC. Ten years later, his son came back to avenge that defeat. But he was defeated too in 490 and 479. Now there were other kings, but Daniel skips over those, or the angel Gabriel rather skips over those, because Xerxes set in motion events that led to Alexander's defeat of Persia. The Persians and the Greeks had sort of a Hatfield and McCoy's relationship. You know, the, the Persians had invaded the Greeks twice, the Greeks were mad about it, and so when Alexander rose up, he wants revenge. And we talked about that a bit in chapter 8. Well, it says then in verse 3, the angel moves to talking about the Greek uh, empire. And a mighty king shall arise, and he will rule with a great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass. Though not with his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides him. The angel then mentioned Alexander the Great's rapid rise. And this truly set records in ancient history. Uh, the Greeks correspond to the belly and the thighs of brass in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, or the leopard in the vision of the four animals, or the goat in the vision of the ram and the goat. Now, Alexander the Great invaded Asia Minor in 334 B.C. He won victories at the Granicus River in 334, the Battle of Isis 333, and defeated Darius III, the last Persian ruler, at the Battle of Galgamela, October 331 B.C. The rest of Persia laid down, rolled over by 330. Uh, so, Alexander just rolled over the Persian Empire. The mighty Persian Empire was no more in a matter of four years. 
It's amazing. Went on to conquer, uh, you know, North Africa and Egypt and conquer as far away as, as the northern part of India. You know, just an amazing uh, conquer, uh, amazing empire that he built and the speed at which he built it. Now, God used that. The very fact that when I'm talking about New Testament books, I'm always saying, well, the original Greek word is, that's because of Alexander. Uh, even the version of Greek. Alexander had a problem. He was uniting forces from all over Greece. One spoke Attic Greek, another one Ionian, another Doric. And they had trouble understanding each other. It was Ale under Alexander's leadership that they cooked up a common dialect of Greek called Koine, which means common. So that Koine Greek, fast forward, is what you find is the lingua franca, if you will, the, com the most commonly used language in the Mediterranean world at the time of Christ. So our New Testaments are originally written in Koine Greek. And it's because of Alexander the Great. It's all his fault. He took Greek, uh, Greek language everywhere. Alexander's realm, though, according to this prophecy, was to be divided into four parts, parceled out towards the four points of the compass. Now, that's the same thing Daniel had predicted in chapter 8, where he said, but as soon as he's mighty, a large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. This literally happened. Alexander died in Babylon June 11th, 323 B.C. at the age of 32 of malaria and alcoholism. His empire was divided among four of his generals called the Didacoi, the successors. Lysimachus received Thrace and Bithynia, um, the modern Yugoslavia in that area. Cassander received Macedonia and Greece. Seleucus received Syria, Babylonia, and all the land to the east as far as northern India. And Ptolemy received Egypt, Palestine, and Arabia. There was a fifth contender, Antigonus, but he was defeated. Also, there was a young son by a Persian princess named Roxanne, named Alexander IV. Alexander the Great is actually Alexander III, so this was the fourth. And he didn't inherit anything either. He just got cut out of the loop. So, Daniel's prophecy was literally fulfilled. Alexander's empire wasn't divided among three, it wasn't divided among five or six or anything like that. It was divided four ways. And only four ways. Exactly as predicted. Now, who could have predicted that? Yeah, only God. That brings us into a section now where he starts talking about the intrigues of these two kingdoms. His focus narrows on the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Okay, Why? Because Israel's caught in the middle between them. If you think of Syria to the north, follow along the coastline, you've got little Israel, and then you've got great big Egypt. Okay, so who's caught in the middle? Israel is. Constant tug of war back and forth. And the way Daniel's going to, or the angel rather, through Daniel is going to refer to these, the Seleucids and the Syrian element is going to be called the kings of the north, because they're north of Israel. Okay? The kings of the south are going to be, are going to be the Ptolemies in Egypt. Okay? And the most famous Ptolemy, the last of the Ptolemies, is Cleopatra, of course, that had a thing with both Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar. 
You've seen the movie, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, then the king of the south will grow strong, verse 5, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. The king of the south, in this instance, refers to um, Ptolemy I, Soter. They have these, these really humble names. Soter means savior in Greek. So, you know... He was uh, proud of himself. Uh, the king of the north, of course, the Seleucid Greeks. Okay, One of his princes here literally means one of his chieftains, rulers, officials, captain. And basically, one translation has, I think, the best slant on that is the NIV. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he will and will rule his own kingdom with great power. Now the first Seleucid king was originally one of Ptolemy's generals. And um, that, was, that was Seleucus I, Nicator. And his name means victorious. Okay, good name to have. Uh, although Ptolemy had sponsored him against Antigonus, Seleucus uh, eventually ruled a much larger territory. They included Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Syria, all the way to northern India. So that began the extended conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, with actually the Seleucids being somebody that had once upon a time submitted to and worked under Ptolemy. Now the next king, then, is in verse 6. After some years they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will she remain with, with his power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. Okay, next king of the south is Ptolemy II Philadelphus. That means the one who loves his brother. Brotherly love, like Philadelphia. He attempted to form an alliance with the king of the north, Antiochus II, who surnamed himself Theos. That's Greek for God. Yeah, he is a really humble guy. Uh, so... You know, <laughs> I'm going, these names. Uh, the alliance was to be confirmed by his marriage, Antiochus's marriage to Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice. Okay. However, Antiochus had to divorce his present wife, Laodice. By the way, her name survives in one of the cities of Revelation, Laodicea. Okay, it's named after her. So he had to divorce his first wife to do that. Well, she didn't like that. So in, in uh, 246 BC, Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, died. That was the father of Bernice. Antiochus II then took Laodice back. Okay, that was a mistake, because Laodice promptly had Bernice and her son killed, poisoned Antiochus II, and installed her, her son, Seleucus II, Callinicus, in, in office. So Bernice? Bernice. Mm -hmm. Actually, Greeks pronounce it Berniki, but it's, yeah, about the same name, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this was not a match made in heaven. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now the next thing you find then is the conflict uh, between the Ptolemies and Seleucus II. But one of the descendants of her line will rise up in his place 
that is her father who died, rise up in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of, of silver and gold he will take into captivity into Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. Okay. Unwinding all of that, the details are, Ptolemy III, Uergetes, was the next king of the south. He was the brother of Bernice, who had been killed by Laodice. He was intent on avenging her, and he invaded Syria. He was victorious over the Seleucid Syrians. He captured and executed Laodice. Went badly for her. Uh, he returned to Egypt with a great deal of loot. In addition to the treasure, he brought back all the Egyptian gods that the Syrians had taken as spoils of war. And that earned him the title of Uergetes, which is benefactor uh, to the Egyptians. Now, Seleucus II attempted a counterattack against him, but he was unsuccessful. And then he died shortly thereafter by being thrown from his horse. Okay? His son, Seleucus III, Soter, another savior, succeeded him, but he got assassinated four years later. So, nice people, these people. You know, they have more in common with the Godfather than they do with how you normally think of kings. This is not King Arthur, you know. <laughs> Uh, now, this began, to, though, to show a rise to the, after this point, this is kind of the low point the low of, the, of the Ptolemaic fortunes, and the Seleucids begin to rise at this point. His sons will no, mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may wage war up to the very, his very fortress. So two sons of Seleucus II were Seleucus III and Antiochus III. Seleucus III invaded Asia Minor, but he didn't live long. He, he was assassinated. Antiochus III, the Great, so-called, attacked Egypt and actually drove the Ptolemies out of Israel. Israel had been part of the Ptolemaic reign at that point, and then he drove them out. Now, in verse 11 catch my breath. <laughs> We've just covered several hundred years, so if you're feeling like you're drinking from a fire hose, you are. Um, <laughs> the king of the south will be, a, be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the later will raise a great multitude, but the multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again rise, a, raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. King of, this king of the south is Ptolemy IV, Philopater. That's the one who loves the father, okay, or loves his father. Ptolemy IV came against Antiochus III, the king of the north, at the southern border of Israel. And even though Antiochus III had this huge army of about 70,000, according to history, Ptolemy IV initially defeated him. 
and succeeded in delaying his interest into Egypt. So that really encouraged Ptolemy, just as, as the angel told Daniel, his heart was lifted up. He thought, hey, I, I'm going to win this thing. Uh, the Greek historian Polybius, as a matter of fact, records that Antiochus lost nearly 10,000 men at the Battle of Raphia in the southern part of Israel. Nevertheless, the prophecy was that Ptolemy was not going to prevail, and that's exactly what happened. Antiochus III returned with an even larger army. If a big army didn't do it, I'll get a bigger army. You know, this was a troop surge, if you will. Uh, and, he came, and he defeated Ptolemy IV. Ptolemy IV had also amassed other enemies in addition to Syria. Philip V of Macedonia had allied with Antiochus III. And hoping to gain independence, many Jews allied themselves with Antiochus against Ptolemy. Now that turned out to be a mistake. Because one of the worst persecutors of Jews in all time, before Adolf Hitler, was Antiochus IV. You know... Who, um, who came after this. So it turned out to be a mistake. But all of that happened in order to fulfill the vision. Imagine if you're watching all this unfold from that time period, the encouragement that it would be to know God has not lost control. God has predicted this. We know exactly what's going to happen. And there's deliverance coming. Yeah. Now, at this point, the Seleucids are not just on the way up, they're winning. You know, Syria is on top here. And um, it says in verse 15 then, the king of the north will come and cast up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength left to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. Antiochus III historically besieged and captured the city of Sidon, just north of Israel. And the kingdom of, of Egypt was in full retreat. Uh, and by 199 BC, Antiochus's rule of Israel was established. Uh, Dan, for Daniel and for the angel, beautiful land refers to Israel. It's not Texas, sorry. It's Israel. Okay. <laughs> it's not California either. Uh, the Hebrew phrase translated with destruction in his hand is better translated, he will have the power to destroy it. To destroy, you know, the beautiful land, Israel. Or its annihilation will be within his power, would be the better way to translate that. Verse 17 then picks up with the career, career of Antiochus III as he ran into Ptolemy the fifth, uh, Epiphanes. And he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Antiochus III, the Great, tried to force a peace between Egypt and Syria. 
Part of his plan was to give his daughter, Cleopatra I, to Ptolemy V, Epiphanes, which, by the way, means manifest. Manifest what? God. Okay, so again, delusions of grandeur here. Um, it's kind of like the family disease for these guys. Um, God manifest, illustrious one, but it has overtones of deity. Antiochus hoped that his daughter Cleopatra would serve as sort of an agent. You know, that she would represent his interests, uh, that he would, that she'd be a spy for him. And if her, if she bore a son, he'd be the heir of both kingdoms. So there was a way to unite those kingdoms, stop the warfare and become a bigger power. So he had all this scheming going on. Problem was, she fell in love with her husband. <laughs> ruined everything because she took his part and sided with Egypt against Syria. Daddy was not pleased. Um, that just didn't work out the way he thought. So, giving up for the moment on Egypt, he attacked Asia Minor in 197 BC and then went for the, Greeks, the Greek mainland in 192. But the Greeks appealed to an up-and-coming power, still a republic at that time. They talked to Rome. And they said, help! We need help from Rome. So Antiochus found himself facing the Roman army. And he was defeated at Thermopylae in 191 and at Magnesia in 189. The Roman general Lucius Cornelius Scipio Asiaticus stopped him cold in 188. His brother, uh, if you're an ancient history buff, was, was uh, uh, Scipio Africanus who conquered North Africa. Uh, so they, they were quite a family. Uh, but anyway, for, stopped him cold in 188 and forced him to play, pay a heavy tribute to Rome. So Antiochus had to return to Syria. And he was kind of a broken man when he got there. Financially, uh, his military adventures came to nothing. He tried to raise money to pay the tribute by raiding a temple in uh, his own territory. And that really upset the local populace. They were so mad that they succeeded in killing him and protecting their temple. So, not our temple, you don't. <laughs> so, in his place, this poor guy, Seleucus IV, Philopater, then, uh, only gets one verse. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger or in battle. The one who arose in his place, Seleucus the fourth Philopater, one who loves the father, uh, because of the need to pay the Roman tribute, he heavily, heavily taxed his people. And the Hebrew word here, matter of fact, for those who are you know, kind of uh, anti-tax. The word translated oppressor means both oppressor and exactor of tribute. So tax collector and oppressor are synonymous in Hebrew. I uh, thought that was funny. <laughs> Take that, the IRS. <laughs> so, the jewel of his kingdom, of course, again, to the angel, to, to Daniel, that's Israel. The jewel of his kingdom. Seleucus IV attempted to plunder the temple. He heard there was money there, and like, like a tax collector, he wanted it. So he attempted to plunder it. He sent his, own, his, his uh, chief treasurer there, Heliodorus was the guy's name. Ironically, 
his tax collector was the one that did him in. He poisoned him. So, and I guess in a power grab, though it didn't work for the tax collector. So I guess indeed, death and taxes are certain, aren't they? <laughs> okay. Now this brings us then, the focus now narrows a little bit more. And we're focusing in now on Antiochus the port, the fourth, Epiphanes. And the angel reveals to Daniel his rise and his fall. And this is very key because this actual, he actually gets as much press in this section as all the other Seleucid kings before him. So there's a real focus on Antiochus. First of all, with his rise, the way he seized power, in verse 21, says, In his place a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. Okay, the angel called him a despicable person. This is heaven's verdict on Antiochus IV. He is despicable. <laughs> okay. Um, of course, he called himself Epiphanes. You know, God manifest. Really humble guy. Daniel's already described him. He's the little horn in Daniel chapter 8. Remember that? The boastful little horn that foreshadowed the Antichrist. Um, Paul writes that like Antiochus, the Antichrist takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Same pretension that, that Antiochus had. The honor of kingship was not conferred on him and that the rightful heir was Demetrius Soter. He was the son of Seleucus IV, but there's a little problem with him. He was held hostage in Rome. So he wasn't available. <laughs> so Antiochus said, well, I'll hold, the, hold down the fort, and the next thing you know, he's calling himself king. He seized the throne by intrigue, just like Gabriel said. He was accepted as a king partly because he was very successful militarily. Because he's very sneaky. <laughs> he, was, he was a brilliant strategist. It's been translated, with a force of a flood, they will be swept away before him and broken. Or armies will be suddenly swept away in defeat before him. So people were going, well, he's successful. You know, maybe we should let him be king. The Prince of the Covenant refers to the high priest, Onias III. The Hebrew word translated prince here means leader. The one who is in front, basically. It's been translated, um, I think accurately, a covenant leader. See, what happened in 174 B.C., Antiochus IV deposed Onias III. But the reason why he did it wasn't because there's anything wrong with Onias III. It was because he got a bribe from a fellow named Jason who wanted to be high priest. said, look, I'll pay you X amount of dollars, X is, you know, talents of silver, if you'll make me high priest. And Antiochus goes, okay, you're high priest. Yeah. 
I mean, you offer Antiochus money, it doesn't take long. Um, and then in 171, though, another <laughs> fellow come along, a guy named Menelaus, and he said, I'll offer you a bribe as you'll make me high priest instead of Jason. So Jason that deposed the original high priest got deposed himself because somebody offered Antiochus a better bribe. It's the problem with bribes, isn't it? Yeah, it just you know, keeps snowballing. Well, his rise was accomplished with a relatively small group of supporters, but a great deal of deception. This guy was a really sneaky individual. And he consolidated his power by doing something really disturbing. He took wealth from the rich and redistributed it to his followers. That was as as the angel said, something nobody had ever done before quite like that. He invented that. Um, it's been translated, when the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and achieve what neither his fathers nor forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses. <coughs> he actually waged war on his own people for his advantage. But the angel hinted at his doom, saying that he would be able to behave that way, but only for a time. There are limits set on this stuff. That's encouraging. You know, when you see somebody misbehaving on the world stage, God goes, yeah, but I've got limits set. Only for a time. Now, he engaged in war with Ptolemy VI, Philometor, in verse 26, 25, rather, it says, He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table but it will not succeed for the end is still to come at the appointed time then he will return to his land with much plunder but his heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will take action and then return to his own land when he consolidated his power Antiochus IV moved against the king of the south Ptolemy the, the fifth, uh, Ptolemy the sixth Philometer, one who loves his mother okay um Thought it was an interesting name. That's probably the humblest name of the whole bunch. He um, was a mommy's boy, I guess. Uh, the Egyptian army met him at Pelusium near the Nile Delta, and the superior forces of the Egyptian army were sabotaged and defeated. It's been translated, he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. It wasn't because of the military force, it was the plotting. He will not succeed because plots will be made against him. His own counselors betrayed him. Uh, it's been translated that those who share the king's fine food will attempt to destroy him. And his army will be swept away, many killed in battle. So he had dissension in the ranks of his chief advisors, and that cost him the victory. They had the bigger army, but they couldn't effectively use it. 
because his pe own people turned against him. The peace talks weren't successful since both Antiochus IV and Ptolemy VI were deceptive. Uh, that's been translated, these two kings, their minds filled with evil intentions, will trade lies with one another at the same table. I thought that was an interesting picture of diplomacy, trading lies with each other. Yeah, that's how it often is, isn't it? Another translation is, seeking nothing but each other's harm, these kings will plot against each other at the conference table, attempting to deceive each other, but it will make no difference, for the end will come at the appointed time. God is sovereign, and all these events occur according to his plan, no matter how people scheme and maneuver. So Antiochus IV returned to Syria in 170 BC, but on the way, he decided money, he needed money again, I guess, and he plundered the temple. And then he left a garrison there to maintain order. And that's the beginning of his antagonism toward Judaism. Now, that was his rise. Daniel also is given a revelation of his fall. And that, was, that began with his second war with Ptolemy VI, Philometer. Verse 29, at the appointed time he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Ketim will come against him. Ketim is Hebrew for Cyprus. Uh, therefore he will be disheartened and will return. Cyprus, by the way, was in Roman hands at that time. In 168 BC, Antiochus IV again tried to conquer Egypt, but he failed. And he failed in a big way. Ptolemy VI had appealed to Rome for help. Here's Roman involvement again. Just as that was the, the bane of his, his uh, father Antiochus III's existence, it was his, his also. Ptolemy VI appealed to Rome and Antiochus found himself once again facing the Romans, facing a Roman fleet. The uh, Roman emissary, Papilius Linus, presented Antiochus with a letter from the Roman Senate ordering him to retreat or face war with Rome. Not asking, telling. You're going to retreat or we're going to wipe you out. It was, what, it was basically the substance. Now Antiochus, being sneaky and a maneuverer, said, well, I'll have to think about this and consult, you know, and that sort of thing. And, Papilius Linus drew a circle in sand around him and said, fine, think about it, but give me an answer before you step out of that circle. Well, at that point, Antiochus, you know, decided the better part of valor was not to take on the Roman army. And so, humiliated, he was forced to retreat back to Syria. But, as we'll see, he took it out on Israel. You find yourself thinking the ancient world with its political intrigues and deceptions and violence and greed seems strangely contemporary. Yeah. Antiochus IV, Kim Jong-il, you know. <laughs> Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, you know. The players, the names change. They're always hard to pronounce, but the names change, you know. But uh, the, the motivations, the actions... I mean, people willing to kill their own flesh and blood to so they can sit on a throne and give orders. Hmm. James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, said, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. 
You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And boy, they did. <laughs> Where did the wars come from? Lust. <laughs> lust for power. Lust for stuff. Human nature is still the same. So Antiochus took the fateful step of declaring war on Judaism. Verse 30 picks up, and he became enraged at the Holy Covenant and took action. He will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Antiochus took out his frustration on the faithful Jews. He favored any who would forsake their faith. He wanted to make everybody good Greeks, good pagans. You see, there had been a report that Antiochus had died. Jason, the deposed high priest, took advantage of that and took the city of Jerusalem in an attempt to overthrow Menelaus, the other guy that bribed Antiochus. Antiochus then dispatched his general, Apollonius, and 22,000 troops to Jerusalem. They did a really sneaky thing. They attacked on the Sabbath. Orthodox Jews don't do work on the Sabbath, including fighting. Until then. They decided after that that they would fight on the Sabbath if necessary. Yeah, because life took precedence. But they attacked on the Sabbath and they slaughtered people. They killed many. They plundered and burned the city. Antiochus then pursued a policy of forced Hellenization. They were forbidden to follow the law, forbidden to celebrate the festivals, forbidden on pain of death to circumcise their sons. He commanded that the scriptures be burned. And on December 16th, 167 B.C., he erected an altar to Zeus in the temple. There probably would have been a statue along with it. And sacrificed a pig on it. If you're familiar with kosher regulations, Jews don't eat pork and they certainly don't sacrifice it either. You know, this was about as unkosher as you can get. But as the angel predicted, resistance arose. One of my favorite Thomas Jefferson quotes, rebellion against tyrants is obedience to God. Yeah, and that was true here, definitely. And that moves us into the final section here, the Maccabean resistance. Those who, uh, verse 33, those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they'll be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, to purge, and to make them pure until the end time. Because it's still to come at the appointed time. In 166 BC, a priest in the little village of Modin named Matthias refused to submit to Antiochus' decrees. And he killed the Syrian officer that came to their village to enforce him. He had five sons. John, Simon, Judas, Eliezer, and, and Jonathan. That began the Maccabean revolt. Uh, Maccabi is Hebrew for hammer. You know, a Maccab is a hammer. So a Maccabi is a hammerer. And <laughs> they, uh, that was what they nicknamed him. The persecution was intense. 
but it was a fairly short duration. God had already shown Daniel it would last only 1150 days. That's in Daniel chapter 8. As the angel said, some joined the revolt sincerely, others joined just to be on the winning side when it looked like they were doing well. But Judas Maccabeus actually succeeded in killing the Syrian general Apollonius that had plundered Jerusalem in battle. Many Jews suffered martyrdom, but the effect, God reveals, is that it purified them. It purified them. It broke them of any inclination toward idolatry. That had always been a battle all through Israel's history, even with the exile. But this broke it. <laughs> this broke it. They had no inclination toward idolatry anymore. Matthias, the father, Judas, others died during the conflict. The author of Hebrews, I think, is writing about these guys when he says of those who through faith, quote, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Surely that describes the Maccabees. That little Israel, with a resistance movement, managed to throw out the mighty Syrian Seleucid Empire. They did. They got their freedom. Now, they didn't keep it. About a hundred years they kept it, and then and then they uh, they asked for Roman help too, and that was always a mistake. You invite the Romans to help, the Romans stay. They're kind of like bad guests. <laughs> it's hard to get rid of them. So now at this point, the angel does something that we'll have to pick up on next time. He suddenly jumps from Antiochus the Fourth to the last seven years of, of history before the kingdom of God. There's a reason for that. Because as we saw in chapter 8 already, Antiochus is a really good picture of the Antichrist. Just like we might in modern times say, you know, Adolf Hitler resembles him in some respects. Well, in their day, what could they look at and say, yeah, this, is, this guy's a lot like the way the Antichrist is going to be. Antiochus, the great persecutor. So the angel suddenly makes that leap, and he does it by saying that he was referring to the end time events. And we'll pick that up more on that later. But so how do we apply this, all this history channel? <laughs> Prophetic application is that past prophecies were accurately and literally fulfilled. Too detailed, you know, to great detail. So will future prophecies be. It's not some vague sort of nebulous thing. It's going to have a literal fulfillment. And again, what an evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. Who would know the future in that detail but God? Personally, I think this mainly speaks to me about God's sovereignty. That God has everything under control, no matter how out of control it seems. And you look at the world around you, you go, this is nuts. How will we survive this stuff? Well, God's got it under control. I don't. Our leaders don't. You know, even good ones. You know, it's, it's beyond their ability, but God has it under control. And that God is sovereign and everything is on his, his time schedule. God knows, I don't, but God the Father knows when the rapture will happen, all those things. He knows how the kingdom of God is going to be established. And I can trust him with that. Because he has got it all dialed in. He's got it all under control. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, I thank you for this, for this revelation that you give us of the way your word is fulfilled with such great detail. Thank you for this proof of the inspiration of your scripture, but even more, this proof of your rule. Lord, may our hearts take firm refuge in you. May we not be afraid in uncertain times because they are not uncertain to you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.